Hello and welcome to the Chinny Vision podcast, the very irregular, oh, how long's it been since uh, April? Anyway, it's the very irregular podcast with me, Chini Hill, talking to various people in the retro community. Thanks for tuning in. And today I'm very excited to have the world-famous biscuitologist and owner of the One Credit Champ YouTube channel with me. It's Mensky. Hi, Mensky. Hello. How's it going? And uh, thanks for joining me here. And, well, tell us a little bit about yourself and One Credit Champ. Many, many moons ago, I felt the insatiable need to document my arcade history. Uh, It originally started off as a little trip through my history of playing arcade games in an old chip shop down the road from me. Uh, It was called Games from the Chippy. But eventually I decided to spread out into other arcade games that I played and arcade games that I never did. But the whole idea was make it short and sweet, only play the games for one credit, see how far I get while I talk about them. So where did your computing journey start? It's all intrinsically linked to the arcades. Early 1980s, with uh, the the ladies of my family, I used to uh, go to um, uh, the local football club bar to um, watch them play uh, Ladies Skittles every Thursday night. And in the corner of that room, there was a black cabinet that would have a uh, rotating choice of games on it. Some of the games that I can remember on it are things like Rally X, Scramble, definitely Scramble. Scramble is a game that I can actually smell. Scramble, to me, will always smell of uh, Real L and Stale Crisps. That's, that's where it really started, because playing these games, obviously, I wanted something for the home. I mean, first I had uh, little handheld things, like little Coleco handheld things and stuff like that, but that wasn't going to keep my interest for too long. So eventually, in uh, Christmas 1981, I think it was, I had an Atari VCS. Before it was ever called the 2600, the Atari VCS, as distributed in the UK by Ingersoll. So much so that they tried to take all the credit for it. It was a light sixer. The start of my journey, before I ever really had any kind of computers was consoles and was the Atari. And the games you had with your Atari? Obviously combat. Combat came with the machine. Oh, what else? I had Yars Revenge. I had Galaxians because, uh, to be quite honest, Space Invaders on the 2600, not that great. Galaxians is pretty damn fantastic. Adventure. Never had E.T. Managed to avoid that uh, mess. I also had some games by, you know, some of those third-party games, which there was Riddle of the Sphinx and Atlantis. Uh, I think those were both by Magic. I can't remember having too many games for the 2600 over the time that I had it, to be quite honest. Those are the ones that kind of come out to me. I remember that I wanted Pac-Man, but my mum said that I could never have it because it cost 30 quid. At the time, which a lot of money. Let's face it, is a lot of money in 1982 bucks. Yeah, as a VCS owner, we conscious of the American games crash and the releases becoming kind of less, so to speak. Not so much less, but a hell of a lot cheaper. You know, all of a sudden there was a there was a certain kind of 
bargain bin to the to the games I, I for example the riddle of the sphinx of atlantis i remember getting those in a two-pack for my birthday at that point in time they were just games that they were just trying to get rid of do the american cartridges work in the power systems or do you have to have an ntsc cartridge in america no or? no no you have to have you have to have power versions of the games i remember that much because they all have pal on the label of the cartridges there's a, uh, you can actually play NTSC games in a PAL system, but the uh, video output chip in the PAL system, because of the way uh, the PAL color burst and everything on in the signal works and everything, the color palette is completely different on PAL systems. And in fact, it has less colors. So they had to reprogram all the NTSC games so that they work on a PAL system with the with the PAL color palette. But if you had a CCAM, it's cut down to about 16 colors. Be glad you never lived in France. <laughs> so how long did you have the 2600 for? I think it was until about 1985. Uh, well, I had it well after that, but that was when I got my next system. I was uh, hanging around with uh, a friend of mine from school called Stephen, and he had a Rebecca Sinclair Spectrum, middle of 1985, and he introduced me to the wonders of Saber Wolf and Jet Set Willy, and I instantly realised I needed some of that in my life. So, come Christmas 1985, uh, before that, I was actually buying games for the Spectrum like weekly I, I i i'd have my pocket money i'd go up to boots i'd buy one of the games from the mastertronic 199 collection every so often a firebird game so for months leading up to this i mean from from probably about september to december every week i was buying a new mastertronic game so that i would have a substantial amount of games to play when the Spectrum came, because I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I knew I was getting this. I ended up having a Spectrum Plus in 1985, Christmas 1985, the year that Sinclair were trying to get rid of all their Spectrum Pluses because they had too many in stock. The month afterwards, January 1986, was the month that the 128K Rack was released. They decided not to release it at Christmas because they had too many Spectrum Pluses. So I missed out on a 128K because I wanted a Spectrum for that Christmas. That was... Oh, dear. That was Dixon's and uh, them getting a lot of cheap 48K Pluses, yeah. wasn't it? Because uh, that was uh, the old story of Dixon's ringing around everyone, including Amstrad, going, hey, Alan, uh, you got any cheap Amstrad you want to sell us? And Alan going, um, no, we've sold them all, thanks. But of course, Acorn and Sinclair had yep. loads of machines around, so um, they got done over by Dixon's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember getting this set from Curry's. So it was the Spectrum Plus. It came with a, a tape deck with a bunch of uh, Sinclair software packings like MakerChip and Tassword. I think it cost uh, roughly about £149. And that price differential with the software, you're talking about the Mastertronic and Firebird la- labels, and that difference between yeah. that and coming across from the VCS, where games could be, as you say, £30 for Pac-Man. Yeah, 
let's face it, that's the reason uh, gaming in the UK survived where it didn't in America, I think, really, where we had this uh, budget label availability and, and the fact that everything came on tape and it was all low cost for them to produce, low cost for us to buy. That is, yeah, pretty much the reason we survived while, while the US didn't for quite a while. That and the, uh, you know, the, the move to computers rather than consoles because uh, there was that whole educational drive and everything wasn't there, um, you know, computer in every home and all that guff. It's a very different mentality. Not everybody ended up getting a BBC, but <laughs> it's a very different mentality because in the USA it's more of an entertainment device, whereas in the UK there was this big yeah. thing of this is a computer; it can do all these different things for you. Oh yeah, yeah. Because when people ask their parents, "Oh, I want a computer for Christmas. I want a computer for my birthday, etc., cetera, etc.," cetera, the excuse to get it was. Oh, it'll help me with my schoolwork. I'll be able to do this. I'll be able to do that. That that was always the excuse. It'll help me with my schoolwork. I can't remember ever using my Spectrum for schoolwork. As an arcade fan, what obviously you're looking at the arcade conversions for your Spectrum. So what are you what are you buying? Of course, yeah. I think my first arcade conversion might have been Space Harrier. Might have been. I was obsessed with Space Harrier. Oh, yeah. Obsessed with the arcade game. So when, so when I found out that that was coming out on the Spectrum, I was looking forward to that for probably months. Would it be arcade perfect? <laughs> the words arcade perfect rattle around the school halls, rattle around my brain. Always that thing. How, how close to the arcade game would these games be? Uh, and, and we'd use it a lot. You know, uh, even when we were playing on Spectrum, oh, this game's arcade perfect. Of course it isn't. Space Harrier, the <laughs> hydraulic, you know, cabinet with the dual 68,000 processor, all the scaling yeah. and everything. I saw that, as I often say, down at Clarence Pier Arcade in South Sea, then mm. getting it for my birthday, playing it before school and it all being vector-based on the CPC and kind of going, well, actually, the level one, they've got all the baddies in the right positions. Beyond that, it becomes looser. Yes. I think it's the same on the Spectrum as well. So at least you have a feeling of... It is. All all of the enemy patterns are exactly the same. Yeah. We talk about Arcade Perfect. It was a representation of the arcade in your home, an approximation, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I I mean, I was a big Sega fan the second I saw a Sega game in the arcades. And I can't remember which one was the first one that I saw. It might have been Hang On. It might have been Space Area. Uh, there was, there's probably even games before that, um, that, that I would have seen lots of, uh, places that I would, I would see arcade machines and then, you know, kind of make a mental note that if I ever saw them from the, for the spectrum that I'd, uh, that I'd buy them on the spot. When you're buying your computer games, your arcade conversions, especially in the late eighties, early nineties, mm-hmm. were there labels you were looking out for publishers that you were looking out for that did a better job than say other publishers i don't know back in the spectrum era so much it feels funny to say now but elite didn't do a bad job at one point in time <laughs> yeah like so you know space harrier wasn't too bad uh their their conversion of bomb jack wasn't bad their conversion of commando wasn't bad uh you know so like pretty much a lot of a lot of the arcade uh, the Ghosts and Goblins as well. Their their um their conversions weren't bad, at least on the spectrum. I mean, Ocean as well. 
Ocean would use the Imagine label for a lot of arcade conversions in the, the early years. I, I mean, I don't think I really kind of looked at one label because I, I mean, it, it was that case of Imagine US Gold would be the ones really pumping them out. What you got was pretty much what you got because, you know, in the end of the day, especially US Gold, I mean, plenty of games I wanted US Gold had the rights to. Sadly, they would often get the cheapest people to program them and give them the least money and the least amount of time to develop them. And we got what we got. Often tear techs, obviously, uh, sometimes probe. Probe are usually a, a bit better, but there, there are certain points in time where, where probe missed the mark. I think I listened to an interview with someone uh, from probe and I think in later years, they were basically developing almost like one game and were just kind of porting it from their development system very quickly onto all these different systems. So they become almost like mm. cookie cutter. Yeah, yeah. In, in factory line development. It does lead me to the biggest disappointment that I had during the Spectrum era. Christmas 1987, after about a year of me playing outrun in the arcades every opportunity that i ever had us gold was starting to do the big uh, big marketing push leading up to christmas in 1987 outrun was coming out on all all the home computer formats and i'd seen all the screenshots particularly one screenshot that was uh, spread throughout the uh, this the spectrum uh, magazines made the game look like fantastic a nice clear road huge sprite of a truck with the car overtaking it and it looked it looked pretty close to the original arcade game outside of the fact that it was all mono and the bottom of the screen was green and the top of the screen was blue and we we all thought it was going to be fantastic and then the game turned up first things first the copy that I got was mastered incorrectly. So the level tape was all recorded backwards. And I mean the actual sound, the the the, the waveform was backwards. So you couldn't load any levels in. So for the first two days, maybe, I'd just load up the main part of the game and there was a beeper version of Magical Sound Shower that would play, and I just listened to that, and I was wondering, I wonder how this game's going. I wonder how this game's going. I went back to Boots a couple of days later, so they got a new uh, a new batch of the game in. Came home, slammed it in, and I was quite disappointed by Outrun. Straight from the start, I was quite disappointed by Outrun. They tried to do too much with that game. You could tell they tried to make it look as close to the arcade game as possible. They tried to give it all of the features of the arcade game, like the undulating hills and all of that. Let's face it, the Spectrum couldn't cope with that. It, it couldn't. It couldn't cope with that at that scale. And because of that, it's slow. It's kind of messy to look at, uh, especially on a CRT. I, I was very disappointed with that. The same people who programmed that, for probe were the people who programmed enduro racer earlier that year and enduro racer is fantastic on the spectrum 
absolutely great. So, yeah, it, it did not do well. Outrun did not do well. And uh, it, it was only about a year afterwards when we saw Chase HQ that I think an awful lot of us realized how bad Outrun really, really was. And if they just dialed it down just a little bit more, just made the sprites a little bit smaller, just done a little bit of this, just 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 like how Chase HQ did it. I mean, Chase HQ didn't go for the big sprites. They didn't try to make it look exactly like the arcade machine. And because of that, it played and felt more like the arcade machine. Just didn't work. Thus began my quest to get the arcade perfect outrun in the home. Because that game I was completely obsessed by. Absolutely 100%, 1000% obsessed by. It was a similar situation on the CPC yeah. because I, I had it outrun and I got it the same day as Space Harrier. It was slow. It looked colourful. The screenshots on the back of the box looked great, mm. but it was just too slow. And I've often wondered if there was a bit of a development crunch up to Christmas because US Gold absolutely, absolutely had to get this out no matter what. That had to be at, yeah. That had to be out of Christmas. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's the first time that I can ever remember seeing a bull shot in a magazine. It was a it was a mock-up. The the graphics that we saw, it was the same graphic for the car, but the trucks, the gigantic trucks and everything that were in that screenshot were nowhere to be seen in the in the finished game. Because they wouldn't be able to be, because the Spectrum just wasn't capable of that. Those trucks ended up being about the same size as your car in the finished game. And like, you know, if, if the rational mind afterwards, when you're, when you're a little bit older, you, you're there kind of going, yeah, I can understand why that, that, that never happened now. But, you know, to a, oh God, how old was I then? Probably about 12 years old. Seeing what I saw in a magazine and then seeing what I saw on the screen I, I wasn't ready for for that level of deception. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I was really upset, really upset by that. And as I said, it, it made me strive to find the perfect version of OutRun. It's a common shared experience, OutRun, because so many people purchased it. And, of course, it was this was an experience uh, on a smaller scale with other games as well, where you've been lied to. Nemesis on the spectrum with the mocked up shots in Sinclair user, for example. <sighs> yes, um, I remember one. that as well. Yeah. But so how long did you mm, carry on with the yeah. specy? Um, I want to say about four months after the outrun incident, April 1988, I decided to take all of my life savings. I, I decided that this wasn't a thing that I was going to ask for a Christmas present because it was a bit too expensive at that point in time. But I was going to go 16 bit. I was in secondary school at the time. I, At this point in time, I was there thinking it would be really nice if I had a powerful computer for school. Because at this point in time, I did kind of want a computer for school things as well. So in 1988, I got the ST Explorer Pack with Rana Rama and Neo Chrome. I went to Evesham Micros. Evesham Micros had a little shop in Evesham. And they just have a couple of tables with rows of different uh, computers and everything. And I remember going in there personally, you know, c because we were so close by, I didn't need to do mail order for this type of thing. A few of my friends at school 
had got an ST by then. So basically my choice of getting an ST was based on the fact that all of my friends had STs and I could copy the games, obviously. I mean, you know, whatever whatever reason would there be? One of the things that Eushin Micros also introduced me to due to their packings was the concept of public domain. I think there was uh, 10 PD discs they'd uh, pack in with the ST Explorer plaque because the um, actual ST packing itself consisted of one disc, I think. And uh, all it had on it was Rana Rama. Um, so, I mean, the, the pack uh, from Eushin Micros, you, you'd end up getting all sorts of uh, public domain stuff. So you get Neo Chrome, the old art program. There was a copy of the big demo. But uh, that that can that continued on because I ended up getting an extensive uh, public domain demo collection. I became quite interested in the demo scene during my ST years. And public domain makes the ST more affordable because your games are twenty quid a go rather than one ninety nine. So what you know? How were you kind of bouncing that out with your twenty pound time games versus your PD stuff versus <sighs> I'm going to say it um, copied games. Pirated games, as you were, as you will. <laughs> Public domain for me was the demo scene, pretty much. I mean, every so often you'd get a game by a demo scener. Demo scener games were usually all flash and no substance. There was always always something lacking in the design department of uh, of demo scener games. Uh, they they'd always look nice. They'd always have perfectly smooth scrolling. You know what I mean? Like stuff that the ST never usually quite did as well as the Amiga. And and, and there it was. There it was in Demo Cena games, but the games weren't good. They, they were rarely that good. I had a lot of full price purchase games. I definitely did. However, one of my friends had a modem and, uh, you know, Every so often, a few of these uh, interesting discs would come my way. And uh, more and more as the time went on, uh, as they were all distributed among friends and people and the networks uh, expanded. So the automation discs, the Medway Boys discs, the Pompey Pirates discs, they became the, uh, the staple for the ST owner. A lot of... Retail ST games were made to work on the earliest model of Atari ST. The earliest model of Atari ST had a single-sided disk drive in it, which meant that for the people who had double-sided disk drives, which was about 80-90% of ST owners by that time, they were wasting half of the disk. So the crackers, they'd compress the games and they put far more than two on one disk. So... The, the the whole idea of having a collection of these cracked games uh, with demo scene like intros, so you know it it appealed to me in more than one way. You know, it wasn't just the games; it was the intros, it was the music. There was a quite a crossover between the, those two different scenes. I had a lot of those games. I had <laughs> an awful lot of those. I've always wondered how prevalent they were because I knew ST owners where I was. And I didn't know anybody with automation or Pompey Pirates or Medway Boys games. And yet when I speak to ST owners today, they seem to be quite a common thing. 
I'd get them through all sorts of different people as well. Although, I, as I said, I had the one friend that was on the bulletin boards and he, he managed to get them from some somehow, somewhere. I don't know if he was getting them through the post or if he was downloading them overnight on his phone. I, I have no idea. And as I got interested in the public domain side of things and everything, I ended up getting contacts in public domain libraries, which meant that I ended up getting my own contacts of people that had these discs. So by the end, even I was bringing uh, games in, into, into the local network, as it were. Yeah. Whereabouts were you buying your games? Well, early on, the only places that you could get the games where I used to live were um, Boots, uh, WH Smiths. It wasn't until much later in kind of the 16-bit era where we started getting uh, specialist shops where I live, and there were a couple that turned up. There was one down the lower end of town called GD Software that was you know quite quite small little shop the uh, the 8 bit games were all in those kind of tiny cardboard boxes you know they they they'd moved on from the tape boxes or the double tape boxes at that point in time and they were in those little cardboard boxes whilst the 16 bit games were obviously in the bigger ones so we were getting to that point in time and um they'd also you know eventually kind of branch out into you know console games mega drive game boy and all that kind of stuff the other shop was the other side of town, and it was in the basement of a PD company. And underneath was this little shop where a small man in a big suit called Andy used to sell me games. I'm pretty sure you know who I mean. You're going to have to help me. The first guest of your podcast. Oh. The first guest of your podcast. Right. Yes, I am a bit COVID riddled at the moment, so apologies for not picking up on that. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Yes. Sorry, yeah. Listener, yeah. I do have yeah. COVID. I tested positive for COVID this afternoon, and I am a bit kind of... Bleh. And Yeah, Bodie. Yes, of course, we spoke to Bodie back in episode one about um, him working in the computer shop. Can't remember if he mentioned you or not. Yes, yeah. Uh, and we bonded... Uh, over our love of the Atari ST and uh, would often swap uh, demo scene stuff and uh, probably the odd non-demo scene disc. So, uh, yeah, we, we have a certain amount of crossover there. And did you hang on to the ST into the 90s? I did, but it wasn't the only machine I had, even at that point. Within the same year, because I was still striving for that arcade perfect version of Outrun, and let's face it, the ST didn't have it. My next choice was go with the company that made the game. So December 1988, I got a Master System. Up until that point, best version of Outrun. Uh, you know, it was cut down, but it was everything that you needed in an Outrun was there. And it ran at a decent rate. And it had the music. Yeah, for me, that was the best version of Outrun that I'd had up to that point, almost certainly. Uh, so yeah, I, I had a master system very uh, early on. Even at that point, the magazines had told me that the master system was not going to be for long because obviously by that point in time, another Sega console had already released in Japan 
and was on the horizon. So when did you get your Mega Drive then? <laughs> Interesting question. Yeah, um, I think it would have been nineteen eighty nine or ninety. When whenever Strider came out, it was Strider for me that that made me really want a Mega Drive. One of these cases, arcade conversions. Get the Strider conversion by Tiertex from US Gold on the ST. God, is that not good? Half the bloody screen taken up by a huge status bar. Like, just jerky scrolling. And then you saw the Mega Drive version and you went, oh my God, that is, for the most part, and as close as I've ever used these words to that point in time, arcade perfect. There were a few games by Ocean on the ST that were getting there. Mainly the uh, the Taito ones, because uh, they were providing them with all the documentation and the graphics to actually be able to make the games in the first place, because an awful lot of those arcade games, they were, they were given nothing, and all they had was an arcade board, and they had to eyeball it. But Strider on the Mega Drive, whew, that, you couldn't get closer. And I guess if you are going down this arcade perfect route, then Sega is the console route you would have gone down, as opposed to Nintendo. Or someone else. Isn't anyone else, really? Well, Nintendo really didn't have the foothold uh, in this country that um, that Sega had anyway. Sega already had a good name for themselves before the consoles really were a thing. Because we had this home computer arcade conversion thing going on in our games industry, and because it was so prevalent, Sega's name was already in ev- everybody's heads. Everybody knew what. Space Harrier, Outrun, Hang On, Afterburner. Everybody knew those games. People knew who Nintendo were. Yeah, sure. But I think that word association-wise, if you said Nintendo to an awful lot of people at a certain point in the 1980s, they wouldn't have even gone to that. They they would have gone, oh, they are those people that made Game & Watches. Oh, yeah, they make a console now. You know what I mean? Who was Sega? Oh, yeah, they made Outrun. They made Afterburner. They made this. They made that. I honestly think that that was one of the reasons why Sega got such a good foothold in the UK. And also, it it probably was an advantage to have a company like Mastertronic distributing their hardware, because obviously they had all all of the experience and all of the networking available to kind of get them into the right places. Not the time that they wanted to, but the year afterwards, at least. And as the years move on, you've got your ST... Do you move on to another machine from your ST? Funnily enough, no. Uh, not for a long, long while. The ST was the computer I had for, for many, many years afterwards. And uh, through the 1990s, I, I didn't even particularly do much computing things. Uh, <laughs> I was a bit of a school dropout, you see, for a while. I had the, every opportunity of uh, going to college to do a computing course, you know, B-Tech or something like that. And I just looked at it all and went, I know all this until kind of like the mid-1990s, and by that time, point in time, I was there looking longingly at getting a PC, and, and you know, when I went to university, I finally did with my, uh, with my loans. And everything becomes rather boring at that point in terms of everyone has a PC. But yes. do you still have any of these machines? I still have the Spectrum somewhere, along with its burnt-out uh, keyboard membrane. Uh, <laughs> I still have the ST, but it's in bits. 
the uh, Master System got sold. Uh, the 2600 still about somewhere. I, out of all the retro games, machines are uh, probably the place uh, in my TV center. I still have a Mega Drive with Mega CD and 32X taxed, a Japanese Saturn and a Japanese Dreamcast. So, you know, the the the, the Sega Holy Trinity. But out, outside of that, uh, no, not really. I mean, a lot, a lot of stuff I'll emulate nowadays if I if I really need to. Renski, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Uh, whereabouts can people find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash Mensky, and on youtube.com slash Mensky, where I will one day, when I've stopped doing secret projects that I can't mention, I will um, come back to YouTube, maybe. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers.